Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today on the show, we're exploring a fascinating white paper published out of the UBS Sustainability and Impact Institute. The paper is entitled From Ozone to Oxygen, Opportunities and Risks in Natural Capital. And we have with us today one of the report's co-authors, as well as the writer of the forward to the piece, Mike Ryan, a regular on this show and the head of the Institute. In the white paper, various sustainability experts from all across UBS share thoughts on the aspects we must consider if we're to preserve and regenerate the Earth's limited stock of natural capital. They highlight different areas from policy innovations needed, to developing frameworks, to the role that investors and the private sector can play to improve our collective response to the impending challenges linked to natural capital. The experts suggest, amongst other things, that thinking in systems could hold the key. Well, let's start with Judson Berkey from the Chief Sustainability Office in UBS. Judson leads a lot of engagements with external bodies, stakeholders and industry standard setters and UBS representative in the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosure. Judson's here to help unpack some of the technical aspects of the paper. Judson, welcome. It's great to have you with us on the programme. I'd like to start off by asking you, well, how radical a rethink we all need to embark upon to meet the scale of this challenge that's ahead. Nature is a big topic. It's essentially all around us. We are embedded within it. So to think about trying to change our interface with nature to, to get to something, say, nature neutral, um, you know, you stop nature, further nature loss, or even to, to get into some more restorative, you know, net nature positive position as, as are some of the big goals being articulated within the international discussions of the Convention on Biological Diversity. I mean, that's a big ask, yeah. And I think one way we try to kind of give some little sizing of that in the paper. It was, if you look at sort of the carbon intense sectors, you know, you, essentially the sectors we need to decarbonize, various ways you can measure it, but within some of the the metrics being used by you know, central banks, other financial regulators, you may be around, I don't know, 15% of, of bank balance sheets or investment portfolios are really in very carbon intense you know, sectors and, and companies. So that, that's what needs to be decarbonized. When you expand that out to nature and think about you know the, the kind of activities that have a, a high dependency on nature to be to be productive to be useful you wind up with numbers more like you know 35 40 45 percent of, of financial portfolios um so one way to think about the fact that it's just, it's just a bigger set of activities that somehow need to be potentially adjusted or re-engineered i mean just like we're trying to decarbonize by changing technologies going from the internal combustion engines to electric cars, you're going from from fossil fuel power to, to renewable power. Essentially, you know, we need to try and do some of those same kinds of things for many of the things, you know, food production, textiles, clothes, um, you know, water intense goods, et cetera. So, so yeah, big portions of, of uh, economic activities, you know, in some sense, you know, need to be rethought at some level or reworked. And, and that's going to be a, a significant undertaking. Hugely significant. And if we look at a line from the preamble that struck struck me as interesting, Judson, is this idea that in the pursuit of the preservation, the regeneration indeed of natural capital, one of the keys or the key perhaps to solving that problem of how that's achieved is systems thinking. And again, a huge question with so, so much scope, but give us a steer as to what you and your colleagues mean by that kind of employment of systems thinking to, to address that problem. 
Yeah, we sort of tried to compare it with, with what's been done before in terms of some of the problems that have been addressed. And that was sort of the analogy we tried to build across that when we were trying to address the ozone layer. I mean, it was very, it was very focused. It was almost linear in a sense, and, and that there was you know, a single set of, of, call them technologies, you know, hydrofluorocarbons that needed to, to be essentially taken out of the system and needed to find a replacement for climate change, clearly bigger and, and broader. But, but again, one can drill in on, on some sense, a single metric there, um, you know, CO2 equivalent emissions, and, and essentially the whole game is trying to figure out how we can do what a lot of what we do today by decarbonizing. So taking carbon intense elements out of the you know, the productive change. When it comes to nature, yeah, everything is connected and, and you almost don't touch one piece without having an impact on another. So that's where things like this planetary boundaries concept, I think are quite powerful. You have sort of the nine different boundaries or you know, call them limits, if we're to think of it more in, in financial speak, maybe. Yeah, there's a set of limits there that we need to operate within and related to land use and water use and nutrient offload and novel entities, you know, things like plastics being part of our overall uh, you know, productive systems then, uh, and then taken out into the wider world. So we need to figure out ways to adjust what we're doing within this set of nine or so limits, one of which is, is you know, climate and, and, and climate change. So that's all sort of connected and you don't, you're just one piece and you change one production process and you know, it has impacts on other, you know, if you're using land to, to try and sink carbon then in certain ways, then obviously that land is being taken out of potentially food production. And, and, and so you have to sort of think within an overall set of constraining factors and, and sort of optimize across a, a set of variables. And that's part of the challenge, but it's also part of the great opportunity because in, in some cases, you know, there are ways to do things that can tick multiple boxes and, and sort of find those kinds of solutions and foster that kind of innovation. And we try to highlight again in, in the paper, a few examples of them. They're all, they're all you know, the early stage, small scale at times, but the kind of thinking that's going on about how to connect multiple topics together and sort of optimize within a set of limits is essentially what we see as, as, as part of what's needed here really to you know, start thinking more holistically, understand things are all joined up understand we're operating essentially within a set of multiple constraints and we need to figure out how to essentially live the way we want to live as a human society but within a set of natural constraints. Well yeah and that interconnectedness is really intriguing to me and the, the report delves into a well, it's almost kind of philosophical, isn't it, in, in character, this idea that, in a sense, we are drawn to simple solutions to problems. But where you encounter something of this kind of interconnectedness, this level of complexity, there is almost by default no simple answer. The answers are also complex. I guess you have to spend some time thinking about how we get people, humans, call them what you want, to engage with that challenge. There, there certainly is no simple answer. And sometimes that in and of itself can be enough to put people off. It's important, though, that people don't shy away from that more profound, uh, more profound question. Yeah, there definitely is a human challenge here in terms of, as you say, to, to get everyone essentially in their roles as individuals and consumers in their roles as potentially um, economic roles and part of companies or other activities that they do, you know, whether they're policymakers or government officials, you know, teachers, you know, everyone in, in their respective roles really to you know, kind of understand the challenge that we're moving into with, with you know, eight, nine billion people on the world, you know, all, all at some level wanting to improve their overall material life as well as you know, their 
other aspirations. Um, and so to figure out you know, how that we can meet our human needs within the overall set of constraints we have yeah, is, is a real challenge. But, but I think we also you know, need to make sure we don't make it so overwhelming that people tune out and, and you know, the problem becomes danger of the problem seeming so big and so insurmountable that people you know, tune out and give up. And, and that's where you know, there really is opportunity here for new ways of doing things, new, new ways to produce things, new ways to live, and new ways to conceive of, of what really counts as value. And that actually can be quite exciting you know, to think about a, a new and better future and how we produce ways. You know, it's a bit like as we went through the industrial revolution and that led to a whole new set of connectedness that didn't exist before. You know, people could travel distances they didn't before and people were able to communicate in ways they couldn't before. And we've seen that in the past decades you know, with you know, things like the internet and, and, and social media. So there are real opportunities ahead. And, and absolutely to your point, you know, no one has all the answers. There will not be single magic solutions that solve it all. And it's really about tapping into the collective energy and the collective intellectual wisdom and, and, and entrepreneurial spirits of, of everyone involved in, in the economy and society and really trying to take us into a new stage of such our human existence. I know it sounds a bit philosophical, but in some ways, that's what the whole Anthropocene concept is about, is, is about essentially the human species now having material impact onto the natural environment in which we live and us having to realize that we are constrained within that and and we are you know a part of that we can't disconnect ourselves from our natural environments and we need to figure out how to essentially operate within that slightly differently than before judson burkey well let's turn next to mike ryan mike is head of the ubs sustainability and impact institute and a familiar voice on this program too mike welcome back to the program let's start well let's start with the institute mike tell us about that first of all why it's here and what it does so let me start with um, the importance and the purpose of the Institute. So when we think about the whole field of sustainability and impact, this is something that is increasingly growing in importance and certainly relevance for clients. Now, by the way, UBS has been doing this for a long time. We have we go back more than two and a half decades where we've done you know really terrific work that's been across each of our major business groups, um, you know, some groundbreaking work in terms of the field of both sustainability and impact. One of the issues in the past has been, however, a lot of those efforts were contained within business groups and often it wasn't broadly accessible. The other issue too is it wasn't necessarily all pulled together in a consistent and coherent manner. And we recognize now that there's been a real fundamental shift in the way that clients, investors, uh, and the markets perceiving the importance of sustainability and impact. It, it used to be something that was less centric to the investment decision-making process but now it's core to it. And therefore the Institute really is designed for two things. One is bringing together the incredible resources that UBS has already, the rich vein of, of thought leadership we have here and making sure it's broadly available for our entire client base and creating consistency in terms of the information we provide. The second is, is creating new thought leadership. But we wanna to continue to advance scholarship and the frontiers in terms of the field of sustainability and impact. And the best way to do that is by being thought leaders in the space. So the Institute really is meant to be an organization that spans all of UBS. It's across wealth management, the investment bank, asset management, uh, and our corporate banking center, and brings some of the individuals across those business groups who've been working in this field for such a long period, who have done some excellent work, and now bringing them into the Institute to work collaboratively to try and provide the best thought leadership we can for investors. That's the purpose of the Institute. 
Well, Mike, set against that backdrop then, and we were obviously already talking with Judson a little bit about the scale of the challenge ahead that we are all facing and its requirement for a pretty radical rethink in terms of what we need to do to embark on that journey to meet that to meet that challenge. Can you talk in broad brushstrokes a little bit about big picture, you know, what the finance sector is trying to do uh, in order to play its part in, in that greater challenge? Well, what we have to recognize, Tom, is that when you think about nature-based solutions and you think about the challenge we have in terms of nature-based capital, it affects every aspect of our economy. It affects every aspect of financial markets. And in fact, every species on our planet is directly impacted by the natural capital base. And therefore, that's what makes this so complex, but so critically important as well. Now, from the perspective of where we sit within the financial service industry, what do we need to do? I think we need to do really three things. One is we help, I think we have to help inform people about the importance of this, because I think what happens is we've had an investment mindset around returns based on what I'll call traditional economic and market-based landmarks or, or yardsticks. We now have to broaden that because nature-based capital is gonna be a critical component of this as well. And therefore, we need to broaden that. So I think it's awareness is the first part that we play. I think the second is going to be the mobilization of capital. That is making sure that uh, investors, as they begin to rethink their investment approach, making sure that that capital is accessible so that we begin to then socialize the importance of the concept of sustainability and more, more, more specifically on the importance of natural capital and mobilized capital. And then lastly, it, it's helping to identify how that capital can best be deployed. So if you think about it, it's awareness, it's mobilization of capital, and then it's deployment of capital to affect better outcomes. Well, Mike, just on that point then, if we need to trust you know, science to drive good policy and a lot of this goodwill that there is in, in this sector and more broadly to address the problem, I guess we need to more fundamentally understand what good looks like. The idea about this quest for better frameworks, more robust frameworks, more things to measure, better metrics, crisper definitions. Are we perhaps regrettably still at a stage where some of those fundamentals, the labels we use, the language we use, the objectives we set and the measurements by which we assess our progress, even those aren't really concrete yet. Is that maybe part of the the next necessary step to get those things really concrete in our minds? It is because I look, I think at the end of the day, there's an old you know adage in the management field, you can manage only what you can measure, right? And therefore our ability to capture data, our ability then to create a series of metrics that are relatable and also relevant is going to be a critically important part of this process. Without that, what's going to happen is we're going to have a very fractured and fragmented approach. People are going to be tackling and trying to solve, you know, quite different issues. So for me, I do think this this notion of how we develop the metrics, um, what sort of data access we have, how we use that, and then lastly, how perhaps we need to see the evolution of a set of standards. Right now, there's lots of different approaches. I think the exciting part of what's happening right now is there so much energy, effort, and and really excitement around what this could potentially yield, not just in terms of you know better financial outcomes, but also what it means in terms of you know better outcomes for for you know not only human beings but every species on the planet. So there's a lot of excitement about that, but a lot of people are taking lots of different approaches, and I think that's encouraging. But we need to also make sure that we come to some set of agreed upon standards so that we make sure that we're we're measuring progress in the same way so that we don't have these issues of 
what I call misallocation of resources based on uh, a set of faulty benchmarks. That's the way I think we need to continue to conceptualize the evolution in the space. And I'll, I'll use that word over and over again, Tom, evolution, because it's not going to be like we, we settle upon it, we all agree. It will be an iterative and evolutionary process. Mike, just finally, on this very term, natural capital, what exactly does that mean? How important was that core concept, if you like, when you and your colleagues were tackling the paper? I think that's a great question, Tom. Let me kind of go to what you, you mentioned about the, the core importance of, of natural capital. The, the natural capital base is the foundation upon which everything on our planet relies upon. So, so you think about it, it is, it sustains us from what we eat, the air that we breathe, the environment we live in, the way we, we warm ourselves. It is, it is the, the pursuits that we undertake. Everything of this is determined by the available natural capital stock. By the way, it's not just true of us, it's true of every other species on this planet. So therefore, the natural cop- capital stock is actually elemental. And by the way, it's incredibly complex. And, and the reason that I think natural capital is so important and why this is sort of the next great frontier or the next you know, great area of emphasis within the whole field of sustainability is that when you think about where really we, we kind of saw this galvanization of, of resourcing, and it started really with what, what was known as the hole in the ozone, right? It, it was a, a very single simple problem right okay we had this this weakening uh, or, or this um this this deterioration of, of the ozone layer and what you saw basically is because of because of cvcs and, and other types of chemicals basically what you saw was it was incredible mobilization of resources directed towards that now and that by the way that sort of syncs really well with the way we think of things in terms of simple problems and direct solutions if you think about climate change that's broader you know, this is more complex, it has more variables in it, there are other systems that are involved in it, and it's taking longer to get going because this is not a single, simple, direct problem that there's a, a, a solution that can be easily crafted. It's one that requires a number of different things happening from a number of different places. Well, natural capital is even broader than that. It, it envelops everything and includes everything that we think about in terms of what sustains life on this planet. And therefore, the degree of complexity is even greater, the number of participants is even broader, and the implications for the planet are even more critical. So that's why I think natural capital is the place now that we're focusing our attention and why we've put together this white paper. Mike Ryan. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club by subscribing to Monocle magazine also. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts and discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. Do check out the white paper. It features all sorts of fascinating insights and some testimonials from some UBS global visionaries that we've met before on this show too. Check it all out at the UBS site. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.